Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, it is my great pleasure to welcome Phil Lautman to the show. Welcome, Phil. Thank you for having me. I've been asking sales leaders to recommend folks to talk to who are top reps on their teams, and Phil's name came across, which is awesome. Congrats, Phil. He is an enterprise account manager at HashiCorp, where they provide infrastructure automation for companies that run applications across multiple cloud environments. Uh, They do a lot of highly technical things. We are not going to talk about those highly technical things. Instead, we're going to talk in general about being a top AE, but very specifically, Phil's done something that I've noticed a few folks have done, which is moving from sales manager, I don't want to use the word back because there's probably a better way to describe it, but back into a, a account executive role. And, and I've seen those people who do that often be incredibly successful. So we'll talk about that journey amongst a lot of other insights that he's learned along the path of his career. Speaking of the path of your career, it it all starts somewhere. So in order to get to know you, I'd love to ask you about the first thing you ever remember selling, perhaps when you were a kid. Yeah, first thing uh, I ever remember selling as a kid was pencils on the side of the road. And, uh, you know, I set up a little stand on the side of the road with uh, a friend, you know, (laughs) I was five years old, six years old, and we, uh, we were selling pencils with a little sign and like a quarter each or something like that. Our margins were fantastic. I'll put it that way. (laughs) <laughs> well, as I mentioned, you know, you, you've had an a interesting career. You did your time, right? As a, the usual thing, right? Did a commercial sales rep, enterprise sales rep, moved up to sales manager, and then uh, you made a, a kind of big decision. So can you walk us through a little bit of that progression and, and how you made that decision? Yeah, definitely. You know, starting from the very beginning, I, you know, I did my two years as a business development rep, you know, 80 cold calls a day you know, every day for for two years. And I give a lot of credit to my foundation, which kind of like put me on the path that eventually I, I went on. But but eventually, yes, moved into the commercial space. Um, you know, I'd always sort of stayed in the tech, the tech world. I'd been exposed to it pretty early. My first job was at HubSpot. You know, I'd always stayed, sort of stayed in the tech space. And so I knew sort of the marketing technology space, obviously the sales technology space, being a salesperson, you know, I was able to speak well to my customers and, and educate them on sort of our perspectives. You know, those deal sizes were like a little bit smaller. And then over time, you know, making the shift into something a little bit more technical, um, a little bit bigger, um, you know, adding a zero to the average sales price and then moving sort of up and again and, and, you know, adding another zero to the sales price. So, you know, just kind of like a classic trajectory within the sales world. You know, what's interesting for me was that whole time, you know, I really saw the VP of sales as like the overall objective, right? So every, you know, all the sales that I was doing, I was doing it through the lens of like, how am I going to learn this discipline? How am I going to learn this trade so that eventually I can lead teams and lead teams of teams and things like that. You thought the ultimate goal was to be a chief revenue officer or VP of sales. That was your mindset. Then something happened, I assume. Yeah, you know, so so what happened was I went into management. <laughs> I uh, accepted a role and, you know, I had been sort of team leading for a number of years, um, you know, I was in a weird situation where we had five directors in one year. Um, it was just sort of like our evolving door, and like I was sort of the most senior. I sort of was selling the most, was rolling up our team's forecast. I was doing a little TLC across our team, coaching the whole thing, right? But you know, ultimately, I was carrying my bag, and I was measured on my number, and I was really being pulled 
in some degrees across purposes. And so I was like, all right, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this for real. And there was also a hole in the VP layer. So they wanted to fill that role and have that person hire. And so it was just the timing wasn't there. So I took another role. You know, I'd be in management right away. I committed myself to two years. I felt like I'm going to do two years in management. I'm going to see how this goes. Because I was just so sure that like leadership was the direction for me. Or at least sales leadership, right? Within the context of like, you know, a fast growing, you know, venture funded, hyper growth oriented sales team, right? Was the appeal, I'm sure it's multifaceted, but was the appeal financial? Was it the ability to coach and develop others? Was it the ability to have a sense of managerial control? I'm curious, what what was the biggest driver of that? Yeah, I, I would think maybe that third one, uh, managerial control, you know, I, I kind of call it the stratosphere, right? Like when you're a rep, you sort of are executing the vision. Your job isn't necessarily to create the vision. You know, you give feedback, you know, you sort of coach up right into the organization. You share what the customers are telling to the leaderships or your various leadership constituents, right? And so that they can make better decisions. But the reality is like your job's to execute. And I felt a very strong pull towards like, having a little bit more control of my vision. I felt like I was somebody who, you know, had a little bit more to give on that front. You know, I really want to be involved in the strategy. And that's part of the reason why I joined a much smaller company. I immediately jumped into running like my own division versus like being one of three or four managers, you know, on an existing sort of group. So I really wanted to like own my own sort of vision. In hindsight, one of the, one of my lessons learned, right, is I think that managing and coaching others, like, has to be number one more than anything, because especially at that level one manager role, like it, nothing else really matters. Like you're there to serve those reps because they are the ones sort of driving the business forward. You know, it's important to, to share a little nuance there, right? Like first job salespeople, like the attrition rate on whether those people even want to do sales is high. Yeah, I'm going to coach you hard. I'm going to try to help you be successful. But like, do you even want it? Do you have a vision for your career? I think there's definitely some nuance there, but I agree. Um, first line management is truly a servant leader position because middle management, it's like you have sort of a boss and you're responsible for the business and you have to sort of share the vision. There's good times, there's bad times, right? You sort of have to stay the course and be be sort of steady. But you know, when you're in that first line, like the reps are just so close to failure and success. First line is is really, really tough. There is some magic behind this, right? Is people who did the manager thing, go back to being reps, seem to have a disproportionate likelihood of being successful. So I, I presume there are some things you learned while managing that made you a better rep, like that that was time well spent, not only in the developing of other people, but it was time well spent in your own learning and development. What were some of the things that you changed in the way that you operate as a rep as a result of having managed for a couple of years? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, there's sort of a, a couple ways to break it down, right? So the first is the actual skills themselves. The second is sort of the role within the business. And then the final one, right, is is sort of like on a developmental aspect. So like on a developmental aspect, like how do you seek coaching? How do you collect information? How do you like collect resources that are going to help you on behalf of the customer? Right? All of those managerial skills where I was working, you know, with the heads of different departments like cross-functionally contributed to my ability to create those relationships for myself as an individual contributor. A good example of that, right, is I just got off the phone with our head of our field CTO team, and we're going to be doing a workshop with a customer. I'm going to be helping with his newsletter that he sends to the whole company. Like, But I don't know if I would have the ability to create those relationships in the same way. 
and also like how to like collect all that information and sort of pull it into my discipline, right? The same way that if I was sort of working in that people to people role. Another one that I would say just is on that like team dynamics front, right? So my first time as an individual contributor, I think, you know, I, while I had the mentality of like, I want to be a VP sales one day, you know, I wasn't able to sort of like elevate my thinking beyond like my quarter, my quarter, my quarter, my quarter. Like I need to be number one every single quarter because if I'm not number one every single quarter, they'll never consider me for promotion. And so I had this like mentality of like just intense competition and also like, I don't know, just short-sighted thinking, I suppose, going into management and looking at a team and sort of seeing how people interact with each other and like diagnosing myself as if I would have been a member of my own team. You know, what I learned was, is like, there is a bigger story at play. This idea, right, of like the infinite game of business, like the goal of business is to stay in business. It's, you don't really win business, right? There's no, there's no like scoreboard, right? So the goal is to stay in the game. And so it's like, if you're too focused on that number, it definitely hurts your ability to like work in the team environment as much because you're just always stressed out about like how you're going to deliver the whole time. Yes, like quarters are important. You have to deliver your number, but they sort of come and go. And you need to make sure that like your team around you and even your leader that's that's with you, like everyone's sort of on that same page and you have to sort of cultivate that team environment because that's what makes it enjoyable along the way. So um, that was a that was a big lesson for me personally, just because I was so motivated. Yeah, and then the last one I think was just in terms of like the individual skills of the game, right? You know, from forecasting to you know understanding what makes deals really move. There's always another gap that you can chase down, or you can fortify like the things that are going to make your buyer buy. Those things that make your buyer care, and so you sort of have to walk that balance. And so I felt like that broader perspective help me now because I was able to sort of apply some of those learnings from seeing a bigger, like standing on a taller mountain, seeing a bigger field. On the last one, I'm just trying to understand, is it that the more time on the full med pick analysis is not as useful as either closing a gap or fortifying a position? Is that what you were saying? You have to put those sorts of analytical matrices like in the place that they're meant to live, right? It is a way of assessing your opportunities. It's not the goal. The goal isn't to have a perfectly laid out med pick because if you're spending all of your time writing up, you know, your analysis of your deal, like you're not selling. So what I think it is is a great tool to understand like what are the gaps and then your job I think as a seller is to pick like a top 2 or a top 3. You can't kill yourself with like 10 gaps on any given deal. Right, you just have to pick like what are the three most important and most imminent, I would say, that matter to making this thing pop and making it bigger and making it more impactful for your customer and making it more impactful for your company. There's always a gap. You find that those gaps vary across areas, or are they often concentrated in a, in a couple particular places across deals? I know what my personal one is. The thing that I need to do the most is try to figure out like the what's in it for me of my customer. I'm great at selling to the business. I'm great at selling to the value, great at manufacturing business. I think champion management and sort of like really building those relationships is like one of those things that you know, really makes a seller that next level of successful is like when your customers want you to be successful. And it's more than just like, a, oh, you were such a great rep. Like I learned a lot, but I'm not buying. It's, it's more of like, a, you know, I, I am going to return your text messages. I do care. This is meaningful to me in my career. This is meaningful to me personally. Like, I recognize that you recognize that 
I'm going to give you a million dollars, that that's hugely important part of my career here because I'm not just being measured on the success of my program. I'm, I'm being measured as, as like an employee, like my job could be at risk if I don't nail this. So I just want to shift gears to something else that I think you probably have a, an interesting perspective on. Just given where you worked, we were chatting before we started recording the podcast about the, this book, Blue Ocean Strategy, which is, a, which is a great book, not a sales book. We often talk about sales books here. For folks who haven't read it, can you, what a blue ocean is, a purple ocean and a red ocean, and perhaps do that in the context of the places you've worked, because I think you've worked at all three types of, in all three types of situations. I think the easiest place to start is like, what is a red ocean? So a red ocean, you have to imagine that there's this ocean, it's full of fish, fish are customers, but there are a lot of sharks because everyone knows that there are fish out there. The issue is, is that you're in heavy competition for those fish with the other sharks, right? And that's why it's called red ocean. You can imagine why. The other side of that, right, is a blue ocean selling environment. So you're the only shark in the ocean. But you don't necessarily know, are there enough fish? Are the fish big enough? Where are the fish? How do I get to the fish? The fish don't know that there's a shark, like, right? And that's why it's blue, right? No one's eating fish. <laughs> and sort of the purple, if you have red and blue, you have to have purple, obviously, is some combination of the two. The one I always think about, like the reddest ocean is like anybody that advertises on Sundays, insurance providers, beer, trucks, people are going to buy them. The question is whether or not they're going to buy yours. And so the way that you compete in those markets is fundamentally different. I think the, maybe a good example, maybe from the tech world, is we talk about these like fundamental evolutions of the way computing was done. So the idea is like in the beginning, everyone had these like big honking computers. And then VMware comes around and they say, hey, you can take any big honking computer and you can cut it up into smaller pieces using software. And everyone was like, what? Like, why would I do that? And like today, they're like a multi-billion dollar a year business. like. I mean, you talk to anybody in technology, they're like, yeah, obviously, virtualization, duh. Like, that's just an example of one that like evolved from like totally blue to totally red today. I think it's great examples. So selling has to be very different, especially at those two extremes. What was one of the companies you worked at that was far more blue ocean where, you know, your company was inventing the category? Yeah, so my last company, uh, it's called Thousand Eyes. Uh, last year, was acquired by Cisco. They, man they make a what's called the observability a solution for multi-cloud networking. What that means is, is that if you have a data center or you're subscribing to a public cloud, you know, you're sending bits of electricity back and forth across the world all the time. And how those bits of electricity flow can be super critical to your business. Imagine for the sake of argument that you're trying to process a Bitcoin purchase on Coinbase or something, and it's not able to because there's congestion or somebody cut a wire somewhere. Well, Coinbase has to fix that right away. And how do they do that? And especially if the failure point is somewhere in this like nebulous aspect or this nebulous concept of the internet, which is like just a bunch of computers that are sort of interconnected, but there is physical stuff in between them, but it's all imaginary, right? So anyway, we were providing observability into that. Like, how can you see that? You would, you would talk to these companies, right? And, and they would say like, well, yeah, but it's the internet. It just works. And you're like, no, 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 like it doesn't just work. How many times have you tried to get on a Zoom call during quarantine? And like your connection sucks. It may be Zoom, but it might be the internet or it might be your Wi-Fi. How do you know? We're trying to explain this concept to the customer. How can we fix this problem that they didn't even really know that they had, right? And what are the implications of not fixing the problem? And like, they're totally wrapping their head around, okay, I don't know I have a problem. You're telling me I have a problem I don't know I have. I'm not even sure that I have it. And then even if I do have it, what is the nature of the problem and what is it worth for me to solve it? 
that is much more the you know sort of true challenger sale, which is you're teaching them something that they absolutely don't know. I can't think of a time when someone came to me and showed me a problem that I didn't think I had. And that's what you're doing, right? You're trying to tell people that they have a problem that they don't know that they have. Like it can happen, right? Eurekas do happen. But like when you think about it from like a B2B or certainly a technical selling perspective, like your decision isn't just like, oh, like this thing costs 20 bucks. I'm going to go buy it because like, who cares? Millions of dollars may be at stake. Tens of millions of dollars have already been spent. There's a huge amount of complexity in that. So the challenge there, right, in a blue ocean is like, how do you even get in the door to analyze their problem? If someone doesn't know that they have a problem, why would they even take a meeting with you for you to tell them that they have a problem they don't know they have? And so our metrics at the time were something insane. It was like we had to send 1,700 emails to get a response. And then of our responses, it took about three or four responses to get a meeting. We were still only closing those meetings at like a 10% rate. And then you have to think about like, how many customers actually have this problem? And then how are we going to reach all of them at this volume? If you have a volume problem like that, the answer can't be send a million emails because eventually you're going to get blocked. What is the strategy then to gain consideration when that 1,700 emails for one response is not sustainable? What, what did you guys do differently? Yeah, um, a lot of it, full disclosure, was just kind of grinding it out, you know, and, and, and changing expectations, right, of the business and also like tactically on quotas and things like that. You know, one of the outcomes, right, was really pushing out advertising in the form of like free product, trials, things like that. For example, they gained access to huge, I mean, Cisco's tens of thousands of enterprise customers, right? It's really changed the nature of like the opportunity, right? Because if gaining consideration is your biggest problem, partnerships might be the best way to solve it. I don't know if there's like a answer per se, but... Yeah, I don't know that it is one answer. And it, it could also be to sort of get in there with some other form of ancillary value. I mean, you worked for HubSpot, right? So HubSpot has their website greater. And even if you don't know that you need inbound marketing, or you know, marketing automation platform in that sense, probably want to understand whether your website has been configured and is responding and all the rest of that. So it's kind of, I guess it's a bit of a Trojan horse way in. And in the early days of HubSpot, like that website grader was killer, right? So, you know, maybe for the the thousand eyes of the world who, you know, people don't know what they do, maybe they need their their version of the website grader. Yeah, exactly. And I actually was in a sprint. So I participated in a sprint. I'm a sales guy. I have absolutely no technical ability, but I was I participated in an engineering sprint. And uh, we actually made a website. You would be able to put in your website and we would fire off these internet tests and we would actually be able to like give you a real-time report. And it was just like as a proof of concept effectively, right? To show the rest of the business. But 100%, that training, you can't get it out. Like once you really think that way of like, how can I give them something of value in order to receive consideration is like huge. So yeah, we actually like bought a GoDaddy site. We actually built a website. We used our software on the back end. We had a front end for it. It was ugly, but it worked. And you could put any website in the world and it would do tests. So it's pretty cool. We only got to scratch the surface on on a couple of awesome topics. I'm sure people might have follow-up questions for, for you. Uh, if people want to learn more about HashiCorp or get in touch with you to find out about opportunities, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, best way to do that, right, is just find us uh, on our website. We have a careers page that you can click through. Um, I- I'm located in New York City. You know, we're currently looking for account executives and sales engineers. We're growing our team, raised a year last year. Really excited about the opportunities. So please come find us. And yeah, I'd love to chat. Incredible having you on. Thanks, Phil. Yes, thanks, Jeremy. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. 
I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.